0: The following is a conversation between Captain Ivan Roman of the Newark Police Department and founder of the Women's Leadership Academy and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM in New York City.
1: Despite overwhelming evidence that female police officers have a positive influence, women make up just 12% of police forces nationwide, a figure that has remained stagnant for the past 20 years. There are a number of reasons for this, including physical fitness tests that some believe are designed to exclude them. Championing the cause for more female police officers is Captain Yvonne Roman from the Newark, New Jersey Police Department. She's also the founder of the Women's Leadership Academy and an executive board member of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Good evening, Yvonne, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
2: And Thank you for having me here.
1: Let's begin with the big story, one that everyone has been talking about, and you've helped Bring national attention to, and that is a change in the fitness test in New Jersey and the impact that that has had on female recruits. What has been going on?
2: I noticed it around uh, 2014 or 2015. The city of Newark had laid off approximately 167 officers in 2010, and I was charged with conducting a personnel analysis, and I found that another 600 officers could retire by 2020 if we didn't start an aggressive hiring plan. Uh, the plan was approved, and what I noticed was that as recruit classes were cycling through academies through the entire state of New Jersey, that women were failing at rates between 60 and 80 percent, and no one could explain why. As I started looking at the data, I found that women were stagnated in policing across the nation at about 12 and a half percent. I uh, got myself trained as a physical fitness instructor to see if I could uh, determine what was going on in the academies. I then learned that a new policy was implemented in 2017 that required the women to meet—well, I'm sorry, not the women— Uh, all recruits to meet the physical fitness standards within 10 workout sessions. After that policy was put into place, the next two classes that we sent, 80% of the women were dismissed from the academy. I I then started looking at the research on uh, physical fitness exams. I learned that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission says that if women do not pass at the rate of 80% of the male pass rate, then the test on its face is invalid. And the only way that the agency can defend against that is if they could prove that the test is based on a bona fide occupational qualification. When I started to review what the women were failing for, an overwhelming amount of them were failing for the push-ups exam, Mm -hmm. and the push-ups have never been validated as being Mm work-related.
1: Who made this change?
2: That was the Police Training Commission. Uh, They had been planning it, um, I hear, about a year, a year and a half. It went into effect January 1st of 2017. But for some reason, the rate of women being dismissed from the academy had started climbing in 2015, and it reached that 80 percent mark after 2017 when they implemented that new policy with the 10
1: workout sessions. Why so few sessions? I mean, this goes on for a while at the academy. Why were they given so little time to improve?
2: Uh, there has been um, no reasonable answer for that. USA Today conducted an investigation where they gathered 10 years of records. And they spoke to numerous individuals at the Police Training Commission. It seems that that was a decision made amongst the commissioners at a meeting. uh, They thought that 10 sessions was sufficient to have someone pass those fitness standards. Uh, Their test is based on the Cooper test. Mm -hmm. Um, The test that they implemented in 2017 had been found to lead to disparities in Pennsylvania just the year before. And um, they implemented that test knowing that I had been challenged and that they lost that challenge in uh, the Pennsylvania State Police. So they figured they'd add the 10 workout sessions to give people a little more time, but those 10 workout sessions have never been validated. It's not based on science, it's not based on physiology. The people who actually designed the Cooper test said that they've never heard of anything like that, and there's no way possible that that someone who couldn't perform that exam on the first date could uh perform that on the 10th date. Yeah. Uh, if you give them uh, sufficient time, uh, men and women can build body mass, uh, and and especially upper body mass. Women have less testosterone than men, so it will take them a little longer um, to be able to pass that test. But that 10 workout session just doesn't exist anywhere else in the United States.
1: So now that this has come to everyone's attention, USA Today did cover it. You gave a TED Talk about it. What kind of activity has that generated at the state level in New Jersey?
2: there's a uh, talk about reviewing the standards again um the opinion on the police training commission board seems to be divided one individual that was interviewed said um that if it's leading to disparities that they would address it, that they weren't aware that this was leading to disparate outcomes. Uh, Another individual that was interviewed said that the uh, academy is not a day spa Mm -hmm. and that if they come in and they're not able to perform it, it's not their job to uh, get someone to that level where they can pass the test. But I argue that the military does the complete opposite and law enforcement community has deep respect for uh, for the military. The military guarantees you that... If... You come in on on day one and you pass the background and and the physical and and it shows that you can be trained, that at the end of that 12 weeks, they will turn you into a soldier, Mm -hmm. that you will pass that test. Um, It's very hard to fail out of the military because they'll assign someone to you to make sure you pass that test. So why are we holding our police officers to more stringent requirements that our own U.S. military, we're not training soldiers, we're training public servants?
1: What's the impact been on these women? who have failed the test, I would imagine in many cases they quit their jobs to do this. Um uh,
2: uh, really tough stories, um women um invested about $2000 in in fees and equipment. They quit their jobs. They cut all their hair off to to be fired within the first two and a half to three weeks. A lot of them uh, couldn't return to their jobs. Um, It's been a challenge, but these women really wanted um, these positions. So they came to me so I can train them to pass this, this physical fitness test. And they went back, and they've been successful. And what I found is that the sweet spot is around two and a half to three months where they're able to pass this test. Yes. The academy's five months long. What this means is, had they not been fired, they would have passed this test. Yeah. And 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 let's consider all the money that was spent in the background check, the medical, the psychological. Um, it was a huge investment just to kick these individuals out between two and a half and three weeks. When law enforcement is admittedly experiencing a recruitment crisis, it's it's,
1: it's national news. Yeah. Uh, are we looking at a class action suit here?
2: The women that uh, are in my group did not want to sue. They wanted to uh, prepare and reenter the academy. The, the newspaper article mentions a class action suit. I don't know uh, which women are involved in that program. In my program, the women that um, joined my group decided to re-enter the academy. And I've had women that it was either their second or their third academy. Mm -hmm. And um, they're, thankfully, um, all police officers. I had um, my biggest group graduate on July 25th. I had 17 women pass the Newark Police Academy.
1: Well, we'll stay tuned to this story. It is incredibly uh, important and interesting. You know, in addition to these physical fitness tests, are there other systemic obstacles, both in New Jersey and across the country, that limit the number of women who become police officers?
2: because so when i started this program it was based on my observation on what was going on in the north police department and i'm also a phd student so i wanted to study it in um a a scientific way and, Mm -hmm. and control the group to just Newark police department. But because so many women were facing the same challenges across so many different um, law enforcement agencies in New Jersey and even federal agencies, I had to open it up. Um, So I'm training women across um, different agencies. I've trained Newark, Irvington, East orange, the state police. I have an FBI recruit. I've done DEA um, juvenile justice. So, a lot of chiefs will argue that women don't want these jobs. They do. Um, they, they, they travel to Newark even though they live far away. Some travel as far as an hour in order to get these sessions. Um, they need to be supported. So when chiefs say that they want uh, to recruit more women, I argue, does your recruitment message mirror the culture of the agency and the academies that they're going into?
1: Yeah, and almost all these chiefs are men, I presume. I think there are about 450 uh, police departments in the state of New Jersey. How many female uh, police chiefs are there?
2: Um, a very small amount. I think uh, about 10. And nationally, there's about 3% hmm. of uh, uh, police chiefs.
1: Yeah. You know, I mentioned in the opening the positive impact and influence that women police officers have and uh, how they make communities safer. Tell us a little bit more about that research.
2: So I started looking at the research. I like to give uh, evidence-based facts, um, statistics that have been researched, not my own personal opinion, because it's easy to dismiss someone's opinion. You have to support it with facts. Mm-hmm. And what the research shows is that women are less likely to be named in a lawsuit, less likely to be named in a citizen complaint. Uh, they use less force. Uh, it, research shows that their mere presence on a scene also lowers the use of force among other officers. Uh, women have uh, great interpersonal communication skills. They naturally de-escalate. They don't have to be trained to do that. And these are traits that some men possess also, but they've been uh, innately found it, uh, within women. Yeah. And I think it, culturally we're, we're, we're more communicative, communicative, and that translates to... To the role of policing,
1: yeah, and from what I gather, that's not tested to the level of the physical fitness is in terms of your interpersonal skills and how you communicate and things of that sort. And it's certainly equally, if not of greater importance.
2: I, I would say it's of greater importance, yeah, especially say, yeah. um, now where there's these strained relationships between policing and community. Um, I just came back um, from a noble conference and one of the chiefs said, you know, know, um, a lot of people, what they have is their pride and um, they will defend their pride. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've had um, instances and I don't like to use anecdotes, but I'll, I'll talk to someone and I might not be able to help them, but I hear them out. And they're so grateful, even though I wasn't able to resolve their problem, and they'll say, "Wow, you don't act like
1: a cop, no you' listen and yeah, and that's a
2: shame, <laughs> you yeah. know um because uh it it it's it takes so little to to just give someone an ear, let them vent right and mm-hmm. and you may be able to resolve the matter just by hearing them out, even though you couldn't fix exactly what it was that they caught you for
1: absolutely. You have founded the Women's Leadership Academy. What's the mission of that organization and what kind of programs do you offer?
2: So we started that because of the number of women that were failing the academy. I realized that 10 workout sessions just wasn't enough. Um, Physiologically, it's not enough time. Um, We have less testosterone. We have less muscle mass. But I know that they can be trained. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of women um, don't know what's going to be required of them. Um, So I bring them in and I uh, provide a first assessment that runs them through the test that they're going to take at the academy and we figure out what their strengths and weaknesses are and we meet on a weekly basis and once a month I'll retest them. But during the week, they have to post their workouts and we hold them accountable through this chat group. But more importantly, it's the mentoring yeah. um, for them to figure out what is the career tra- trajectory, what to expect, what the interview is like, what the background check is like, what items they should have prepared in order to meet these uh, um, background requirements. A lot of men have family members that are police officers, Mm -hmm. and and women don't have usually that access to that information. And that goes a long way to helping someone um, enter policing.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you've created a sisterhood, and so often they feel like they're out there by themselves. But when they can sort of commiserate and share stories and... And, uh, and tipped with each other. It makes all the difference in the world.
2: Yeah, I, The relationships are beautiful. Um, I, I consider a lot of them my friends. They've been to my house. I've been to their house. And these relationships uh, really don't exist within police departments because there's too few women. Mm-hmm. Or um, maybe um, there's this concept of othering where where you're a minority, you align yourself with uh, the, the thoughts of um, management and you're scared to speak out and advocate for yourself. So part of what we do here is creating these relationships so that we also have a network that recommend each other for training, recommend each other for positions, because that's how someone gets ahead. That's how someone gets on the right track for leadership, if that's what you want.
1: Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned a moment ago, much of policing has been done based on old assumptions and stories and anecdotes, and sometimes things that just seem to make sense. But you are a uh, executive member of the uh, Board of the American Society for Evidence-Based Policing, and you're looking at these practices in a much more scientific and rigorous way. So let me ask you about a couple, um, starting with broken windows. First, why don't you explain to our listeners exactly what broken windows is and what evidence has shown where it's been practiced.
2: So broken windows was a theory by George Kelling and James Q. Wilson. It was a magazine article published in The Atlantic in in 1983, I believe. And uh, the theory says that if you address minor offenses, that crime would go down, that when people feel that there aren't um, guardians on the street, that um, it allows violent crime to fester. And the theory said that uh, police should intervene in establishing order in a community. Um, as chiefs embrace this theory most famously uh, in um the NYPD yep. uh, in, in arrests increased dramatically in um offenses such as uh, vagrancy loitering public consumption of alcohol um new york city at the time was innovating greatly and um there was a stagnation in policing where there was no innovation going on so they embraced the broken windows theory along with Comstat. so um crime went down in new york city and uh, a lot of people took notice because new york city was a very violent city and now it's one of the safest largest cities in the world and people um the assumption is that broken windows was the driver of that. But there have been many studies examining whether it was broken windows or not. And uh, it, it's mixed reviews. Um, Many um, studies find that this was not related to a broken windows, that you can't separate broken windows from Comstat, um, and that crime was going down nationally, even in cities that did not implement broken windows. And then there's the question of the harms and um, the over-incarceration of individuals. Uh, Broken windows is practiced in uh, areas that are experiencing disorder, which tend to be black and brown communities. Communities, and the way that broken windows is enforced um, is usually through arrests, um, though James Q. Wilson and George Kelling didn't advocate for mass arrests in the original article. Um, it can't be denied that. It, it was counted and measured as arrest, even in an article that was ri- written by George Kelling um, in defense of broken windows. Um, the argument goes that it's the ivory tower elite that are attacking uh, broken windows and that they don't have a fundamental understanding of the needs of police departments. Uh, James Q. Wilson, um, and I'm sorry, George Kelling and an individual named Sosa, uh, William Sosa, I believe, wrote a paper and they said, we will prove once and for all that Broken Windows works. In a 10-year period... Uh, for every 28 low-level offense arrests that were affected, one violent crime was prevented. In the span of 10 years, 60,000 violent crimes were prevented. So I'm not a statistician, but I pulled out my calculator and I multiplied 28 arrests times 60,000 violent crimes over a 10-year period. And that came out to about million six hundred thousand and eighty six hundred eighty thousand people being arrested. So that means that 1,620,000 people weren't responsible for violent crimes. So you have to ask yourself, do the ends justify the means? Are are these people, Mm -hmm. is it okay to lock up 20 individuals and in that net you have 27 guppies and one shark? Uh, you have to ask yourself what is the impact to that community that's, that's right. arrested and re-arrested over and over again? The impact of the fines that accumulate, your driver's license suspended, the impact to your criminal record and mm-hmm. your employability. What what happens to these communities that are experiencing this disorder policing? And Chiefs love it, and they'll say, well, it's so elegant in its simplicity. Its simplicity is what makes it so dangerous. That's
1: exactly right, and that's true with just about everything. Uh, People find that one stat, and Mm -hmm. it it validates what they want to do, but you have to look at it holistically and all those unintended consequences that people never take a look at. What about juvenile curfew laws? Are they a good way to reduce uh, juvenile crime?
2: So... uh, (laughs) Starting in um, every summer, you'll usually have a wave of police chiefs announcing that um, they're having a a juvenile curfew um, implementation over the summer. Um, The juvenile... The scare about juveniles came about with uh, John Diulio. He was a Princeton um, professor, and he came up with the theory of super predators in 1990. Mm -hmm. He said that there was going to be a wave of homicidal juveniles that would make the Bloods and the Crips look meek by comparison. (laughs) And and it never materialized, but it led to these— Uh, laws where you could charge juveniles as adults, you can put them in jail for life, and actually starting in 1990 the violent crime for juveniles plummeted and it keeps plummeting and um if you look at the trend lines for juvenile crime uh, if it continues it'll fall off the map it'll go into the negative <laughs> which is which is impossible but these laws that were enacted these curfew laws to curtail these super predators were never taken off the books mm-hmm. and what it does is it introduces juveniles into the criminal justice system for status offenses status Offenses are are crimes that wouldn't be a crime if you were an adult. So, um, being outside after ten or eleven p.m. W- w- would be a, a status offense, and and in some agencies. That status offense leads to an arrest. An arrest means you're fingerprinted and photographed. You've just entered this child into the juvenile uh, justice system for being out late. Mm. Um, And and chiefs will argue that it helps them combat crime and problems with uh, problematic juveniles. But you don't need the curfew law to do that. If you have probable cause or reasonable suspicion, you can make that stop without the curfew
1: law. Mm -hmm.
2: And you can ground it on the Constitution instead of uh, a status offense of being out late.
1: You know, on a very sober note, another New York police officer killed himself last week, uh, continuing a rash of suicides that have claimed eight lives this year. And it's hard to comprehend that more police officers now are losing their lives to suicide than are in the line of duty. Speak to that, Yvonne. What's being done? What still needs to be done?
2: So uh, for a long time, no one was tracking how many officers were committing suicide. I was in a training in in Boston in 2016, and someone from the Boston Police Department had told me that in in that month, four or five, um, I don't remember if it was four or five, -hmm. uh, officers had committed suicide. And – It's it's getting more attention and it's getting uh, funding from the National Institute of Justice, the National Institute of Health. They um, even the president's task force on 21st century policing, the first pillar is increasing trust and legitimacy. But the sixth pillar is officer wellness and safety. Mm-hmm. And if you have officers that are well taken uh, well taken care of and they're healthy, um, everyone benefits, the police department, the community. And too often, um, officers are stigmatized for admitting anything that may be emotional or mentally draining. They're expected to be these machines, and the minute that they mention that they may be suffering some kind of um, um, mental issue where early on they can get help. Um, many agencies' first response is to take their gun and 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 force them to go into th- a hospital for screening. Um, so if there's this huge stigma assigned to it, um, officers aren't going to come forward and no, admit right. that they're suffering vulnerability. They'll suck it up. That's <laughs> a very common practice, and then um, then their peers will tease them and tell them that they're part of the rubber gun squad. Mm-hmm. Um, why aren't we allowed to 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 be human, right? Our officers are not machines. They internalize trauma day in and day out. They're acting um, as guardians. They have to hold it all in and control this scene. But ultimately, that has to let out in some way. We need to give our officers a more positive um, avenue to release this. We need to give them access to mental health. And we can't continue to stigmatize it because... We it, it will lead to this rash of suicides. Um, we have to allow officers to seek the help that they need. The agency has to support them, and we have to remove the stigma
1: about asking for help. How does the public's perception of the police, and there have been some pretty tough stories lately on the news, um, affect the morale of the force?
2: The morale definitely is, is impacted. Um, you can see it on... Um, officers how they're reacting they feel that they're not being supported they fear they feel that at times um, media is quick to judge before all the facts are coming out um I, I believe that, you know, there's a need for criminal justice reform, but I also believe that there's been a villainization of an entire uh, workforce. Um, there are bad apples, and they need to be rooted out, and they they, they need to be identified. And uh, police agencies have to be more proactive in that so that officers that are trying to do the right thing, can do their job without this friction that's occurring. So uh, there is definitely um, an increase in individuals uh, challenging police officers um, on minor traffic stops. And it, 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 the potential is there for escalation. Um, we have to find a way to um, resolve these issues. But uh, definitely when you speak to any officer across the United States, they'll say that there there is an issue with the, them feeling safe mm-hmm. and, uh, and supported.
1: Yeah. Let me close with this, Yvonne. For a young woman, maybe in the process of making a career choice and thinking about becoming a police officer, what advice would you give her?
2: So um, I mentor. Uh, right now we have about 150 women in my group, and I'm very honest with them. Uh, it's a great job um, mm-hmm. if I had to do it all over again. I will, but was it easy for me? No, it wasn't. I had to work twice as hard for half of the recognition. Um there is the part of being sexualized always. Um I once was given an award for crime reduction in my precinct and I was interview in, um I was introduced as the most beautiful captain in the police department. That completely diminished my accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Um it and 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 it detracted from what I had achieved. So um there it it's a, a great job. I've when I've I've been a police officer no day has been identical to the one before. I've been given incredible opportunities. I've been able to test all the way up the chain of command. I even served as chief of police, but I want women to go in knowing what the climate is and what we can do together to to change that because I believe that Uh, change comes gradually with gradual pressure, right? It's having these uncomfortable conversations about my own experience and what they can expect. And then they know uh, how they can act. They know how they may react. They know what the laws are. They know what their recourses are. And that they know that they have a support system that that will help them. That's what this organization offers. It's a great job, and, and I recommend it wholeheartedly.
1: Well, Captain Yvonne Roman of the Newark Police Department and founder of the Women's Leadership Academy, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. You gave a splendid TED Talk covering a lot of this. Where can listeners go to watch it?
2: Um, You can go to TED.com, Yvonne Roman. So uh, if you go on to TED.com and enter my name, Yvonne Roman, you'll find uh, the talk.
1: It's only six minutes, but it's six minutes of gold. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Yvonne. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show.
2: My pleasure being
1: here. Thank you. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this.
0: The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at bizofgive on Twitter and at facebook.com businessofgiving